Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi to talk about the first epistle of John. Zelwyn, how are you? I'm doing well, Willie. Things are getting cooler up here on the prairies, the tundra, as it were, and I don't know. I kind of enjoy the the colder weather. That's just part of my <laughs> cryptid nature, I guess. Right. It's uh, it's actually quite uh, quite cool up here today. Uh, fall is surely here, and who doesn't like fall? Now, has the tree began to turn where you are? A few of them, yes. I I can see the elm trees out around the the church here are starting to turn a lovely shade of yellow. So there we go. Not turning here yet, but it surely will soon. Harvest has begun here. You know, lots of uh, of corn being harvested just across the street, and soon they will be harvesting Satan's legume. So <laughs> it'll be it'll be out of here, and I'll be that'll, I'll be happy about that. <laughs> so it is good to be back after a brief absence, but uh, a lively discussion of animal husbandry with you and David last episode. So that was fun. Did you enjoy your journey down into the center of the earth? Yes, I did. Uh, I learned much, and I can say uh, definitely I wasn't gone because the Darrow gave me an unspecified virus of unknown origin. <laughs> I can say that much. And I can definitely say that unspecified virus of unknown origin was not made better by unspecified medications of an unspecified nature and unspecified I'm vitamins. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what you're talking about, Willie. It's all a mystery <laughs> wrapped in an, enig in an enigma. Right. But um, it is it is good to be back, uh, having having escaped the cavern. So, you know, here we are. And, of course, we'll have to make another excursion very, very soon. But first, we have to talk about First John. Now, First John is a very good book. I'm not sure how far we'll get today. But very important. Uh, it sits between Second Peter and you guessed it, Zelwyn, Second John. Second John. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, Second John and Third John are books I think you, everyone tends to forget about just because they're so short. But First John is is a great book too. So, right, uh, written by John, most likely John, son of Zebedee. When it gets into this Johannan authorship of stuff. I get a little peeved, and we talked about this a bit with the Revelation episode, and we've not done one on the Gospel of John, but uh, one of the things I don't like are when uh, we get a little too big for our britches and start deviating from who the historic authors were. Right. <laughs> well, I, I don't know that, that John, I know a John wrote Revelation, says some academic, you know, uh, some Lutheran <laughs> academic, and uh, it, it's just, it's very frustrating because when it comes to the canonicity of books of the Bible, authorship is, plays a huge role in that. Right, right. And, and because we want to impress people at the SBL who don't care about us anyway, we throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to some of this stuff. And it just seems a little a little silly to me. 
Lutherans ought to know better that we don't need the praise or even the respect of the world. And I don't think we're guaranteed. I'm not saying we be we become like Jack Chick style or anything like that as far as scholarship goes. But at the same time, I think the ancient church was pretty wise when it comes to this. And there is well, a received tradition, you know? Right. Well, and also with the ancient church too, you know, they could have used the, the literary Latin and stuff of their day, the, the high flute and Greek as it were, but they knew that they wanted to reach people. You know, they didn't care so much about impressing the, the elite as it were. They wanted to right. reach everybody. And so they wrote in a way which was accessible. And I think well, there's something it, to learn yeah, in that too. It is kind of interesting too. When, when, when our guys want to hobnob with, we'll say the academic elite or even the political elite, all of a sudden, uh, confession and subscription kind of go out the window. And I'm not saying people do unionism, but when somebody meets like a cardinal, he never calls him to repentance, right? Or when somebody meets a uh, some academic who denies the virgin birth, he never says, you need to repent and believe the gospel, pal. That never happens, as far as I know. We and they're going to go ahead. Sorry. We need to shout shout down the Pope, is what you're saying. That, that's exactly what I'm saying. Like Ian Paisley did. <laughs> and it, well, I mean, you know, you think about the go. Well, it wouldn't do any good there. You don't know that till you try it. Have try rebuking. Yeah, have, have you tried rebuking those in high places? Maybe you know, we'll give it a shot sometime. <laughs> it's just, it's just funny. Like you put the name Lutheran on you, and you, and you know, he goes to the to the tippy top of authority in his day. And uh, and says what he says, and we're like, well, I don't want to make I don't want to make uh, the conference awkward. <laughs> I don't know what would Wham do. That's my question. That's what we should be always asking. What would <laughs> Wham do? Well, now that I've thoroughly scandalized everyone, so the occasion of writing John, that's that's one that's a little bit uh, you know debated. Uh, do you have any any strong theories about uh, why he? I mean, I think I think John is writing the things that he does to counteract some ideas which were already starting to be prevalent. You know, it's not that he's coming at like a group that's never heard of Jesus or something like that. Obviously, the language of First John kind of precludes that. But he is speaking against, you know, ideas of, you know, what who is Jesus and uh, trying to make him into something less than what he is. So I think I think it is a polemic in some degree. But it is certainly in in John's way a polemic that is, I don't know, we want to say very, very, very smooth, very, very wholesome. So right, right. I mean, there's, you know, there's there's pretty good evidence that he's he might be talking about the Docetists, people who are going to say that the Christ, the body of Christ was was more like a ghost. Right. or something like that. But you know, Gnosticism isn't quite as developed at this point either. Maybe we should do an episode on Gnosticism. Actually, let me give you, let's let's do like a brief excursus on Gnosticism. Not everything is Gnosticism. Excursion over. Right. Like, <laughs> stop calling everything Gnosticism. It's like for 150 or for 400 years, everything we didn't like, we called Reformed. And now everything we don't like, we call Gnosticism. Gnostic, right? right? You know, I, I prefer cherry cotton candy over the blue. Blue cotton candy is Gnostic. <laughs> Really, I didn't. I didn't know that the blue had um, aeons and and all of these ideas about. <laughs> That's right. The, the, the demiurge is found in the stick so. of the blue cotton candy. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and that is kind of kind of the tricky part when reading. I mean, even reading something like the Gospel of John, you're trying to infer who the opponents are or who he's speaking against right. in a way, and you just have to do that because some of these doctrines, you can see the the genesis of them 
happening here, but they're not fully developed yet in some cases. But John is going to have a lot of uh, admonishment toward Christians. Uh, There is going to be a lot of talk about the law and what that means. And I honestly believe that some of this is a little bit hard for especially Lutherans and a lot of Christians to hear. Why might that be, Zelda? Well, is it because we sometimes approach the the gospel as a way of fixing the law, so to speak? Yeah, right. Undoing it. Undoing it. Like, you know, we, we, we feel bad because of the law, but then we come around and feel better because of the gospel, this kind of cycle that goes around and around. And unfortunately, right. that's that's not a very healthy cycle to be in because then it leads us to not take the law very seriously. Right. And and there's going to be some hard stuff here, you know. Now, First John, and we'll get to this, of course, you know, does have, um, you know, the famous verse about if, if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father. But reading on past that is where the difficulty comes in. So let's go ahead and dive into the text a little bit, Zellin, if, if you're ready. Okay, go for it. So it's going to open with, um, for lack of a better term, we'll call the the testimony of the apostle, okay? The confession of John. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you eternal life, which is with the Father who who was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we also proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, with the Son, Jesus Christ, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So, already affirming that he is a witness of Christ, and he's he's saying very clearly, touched with our hands, concerning the, things like that, using very earthy language. This is why people see some proto-Gnosticism here, or Docetism here, because this idea that you would deny a physical body. Well, here he's saying we've touched it. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've seen it, we've touched it, it's not a ghost. It's real, it's true, and it's a physical reality as well. And so there, there is the testimony. Well, even even that this was something which was from the beginning. So you have a, a testament yep. to the divinity yep. of Jesus. You know, he is the one from all, the beginning, as in all beginning, you know, the one who is creating the world. But it is this same one, the same life, as John calls him, who has been made manifest among us and the one whom we have seen. So... Yeah, I mean, even even in like two, three verses, John has already proclaimed the reality of the incarnation. He's already proclaimed the, uh, the truth of Christ's divinity. <laughs> right. He's already, you know, I mean, even even the, he's even said something about you know who what Christ has come to do. That this life has been made manifest among us, and we're proclaiming to you the eternal life. Right. And you know, I would the, argue there is a strong textual connection between First John one and the Gospel of John chapter one. Imagine that. <laughs> probably a different guy, though. <laughs> Dude, complete. It probably, it's a, a school or something like that. You know, that's that's, right. that, that's what it is. It's a, it's a mystery school. <laughs> so the message we've heard, we proclaim to you, God is light and uh, is him is no darkness at all. It's really hard for me not to just sit here and read the entire text to everybody. Um, but when we come toward the end of chapter one, we have the verses that many Lutherans are going to know. And tell me if you heard it before, Zelwyn. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, that's we the only we, thing we need from First John. That's right. Well, there's one more line. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Okay. Uh, where, where have we heard that before? 
Well, of course, it's part of uh, the lit- some of the liturgies which we have in the church right. as part of the confession uh, which we make. And uh, I think, I, I mean, there's there are beautiful verses. I think there are certainly things we should hold on to. But I guess my joke, what I was trying to make is, is that they're not the only verses here. Right. You, yeah. Well, we will read on. We will read on. But I mean, first, we want to pause and not and not skip over these to say that it's true. If we say we've not sinned, we make God a liar because God's word tells us we're all sinners. Right. <laughs> and his word is not in us. So we do have to admit that we are sinners. Right. Okay? Or even worse sinners. You can, you, can, you can use the past tense. If we say we have not sinned for, is, how it, is how it reads here. Okay, and if you stop there, you go, cool, and God forgives us. <laughs> but then John goes on. My little children, I'm writing to you these things so that you may not sin. <laughs> yeah. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. He is the propitiation for our sin, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And you're like, okay, all right, so there we go. We've got, okay, we're not supposed to sin, but we're going to sin, so we have an advocate. But John just keeps going. <laughs> He says, by this we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we know we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This now, what do we do with that? This is basically going to turn into an audio Bible with the Reverend <laughs> Willie Grells here. Right. So, so this is a this is one that people that people will want to uh, really gloss over and go. Okay, so what this is referring to is Christ's righteousness is imputed to me. This is all about forensic justification. That is the keeping of the law. I can't keep the law, so Christ keeps it for me, and that's what it's talking about here. Unfortunately, that absolutely massacres the text. Now, I'm not denying we would never deny here that Christ keeps the law for us on our behalf and fulfills it for us. That you know, and, and is our propitiation, but that is not the thrust of the argument in First John. Well, because let's let's break it down one step at a time here. So if we start back up in in chapter one, verse eight, which is where you started reading, you know, we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us, right? So the the first part of this argument is is that we have to recognize that we are in fact sinners, right? I don't think anybody would deny that. That's a pretty clear text, right? And then it goes on to say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Again, a very clear text. If we confess that we are, in fact, sinners, God is going to forgive us. You have this recognition then that, you know, we must confess that we have sinned, that we have not kept God's law. But then I think where the turn really comes in there is the first verse of chapter two. I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. We can't skip over that. We can't just gloss that and go right on to say, but if anyone does sin, because John's purpose in writing this is so that we do not sin. But what does it mean to not sin in this case? You know, he's going to go on, uh, you know, immediately and say, I'm love, I'm writing to you, beloved, or with no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have. And essentially <laughs> the old commandment is to love one another. That love is how we fulfill the law. Right. And we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like as we go on through the text here. But so love your brother. Okay. The darkness is passing away. The true light is shining. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. And then he's going to say, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you fathers because you know him. I'm writing to you young men because you've overcome the evil one. I write to you children, so on and so forth. 
but you are to love your neighbor. And then moving on into verse 15, you are to not love the world. So there is a conscious embracing of your brother. Okay. And I, and I would, and I do think it's, it's, it's notable that, that he's using familiar language here, right? Whoever loves his brother, right? That, that I, the language applies more to the household of faith right here, because you're going to have a contrast between that, that you should love and that, that you should not love, which are the things of the world. Do not love the world or the things in it. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. Uh, and, and so then what is in the world? Well, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life it is not from the Father. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. And so with the last few minutes of this section, let's talk about what that means. What does it mean to love the world? What are the desires of the world? And I think we talked a little bit about them in the intro when we were making the jabs about you know, wanting respect and things like that. Right. Well, I mean, yeah, the, the love of the world in that case would be the desire to be noticed, the desire to be uh, love, you know, to be accepted by the world so that we're not at odds with the world. But to be at odds with uh, with to be friends with the world is to be at odds with God, you know, to be God's enemies, because the two cannot. I mean, the de- the desires of the two are different here, because to be in the world along with its desires is to hold on to something which is passing away, as John says. But to hold on and do the will of God is to do something which is lasting forever. So yeah, right. we don't we don't want to be caught up in the desires for the things of this life, for the things which are passing away, but to look to the things which are eternal. Right. And he specifically mentions desires of the flesh. Okay, so right. lustful things like that. Also the desires of the eyes. I mean, these two things. But you can lust after things, colloquially speaking, other than sex, which I mean that would be part of it, but it's just wanting to accumulate these things. And then, of course, the pride of life, which is something that undercuts many people without them even noticing. That pride is actually numbered with these things that pass away. Pride will go away. If you live long enough, you're going to be humbled at least by old age and, and being infirm. Right. Also, if you crave celebrity, if you crave the attention of men, men will betray you. Men will eventually abandon you. If you crave audience, if you crave esteem, eventually your show gets canceled. <laughs> right? Right, right. Well, I mean, even, even you know, the if you want to use a, a worldly example, even the TV show that we like so much is eventually going to come to an end, right? It can't go on right. forever because right. the things of this life pass, pass away. Yeah, Sam Malone is going to turn out the lights at the bar and it's over. The show's done. Hawkeye is going <laughs> to... You know, uh, right away in the helicopter, it's done. Uh, exactly. So this is what it looks like then for the Christian. You are to love one another, no matter what your age, no matter what your status, you are to love one another, and you are to reject the things of the world. And really, it's about not being mastered by those things. Okay, there's nothing inherently sinful about owning a new car, right? Nothing right. inherently sinful about having an audience. Nothing inherently sinful you know, about marriage, things like that. However, um, they can become bad things, not marriage. That was a bad example, but I meant to say human relationships, all of these things. I mean, and even marriage in this example, at least can be abused. Right. And so nothing is inherently wrong about these things until we begin to use them wrongly. And so 
for uh, for many, the temptation is going to have to be quelled by doing what? By just simply avoiding these things. I'm not saying go into a sandy cave or something like that. I'm not saying be a stylite. But at the same time, you don't always have to have the new phone, right? You don't have to have the new car. You don't always have to be hustling after influence. You don't need to be a grifter, as it were. You're called to be faithful where you are and to understand and discern the word of God and live according to it in faith, in a justifying faith. Right. And this is the faith that justifies, right? The faith that believes in God and it lives as if it's true. <laughs> All right. Well, we've come up on our first break. We'll be right back with the Antichrist right after this. Listening to a word fitly spoken, I Willie Grills here with Selwyn Heidi talking about First John. Well, we uh, before we get to the Antichrist, Selwyn, uh, you are right. We glossed over the most provocative statement here: "Do not sin." So, tell us a little bit more about that, since everybody has been sitting all nervous since the last segment. <laughs> well, I mean, because it comes out of the whole talking about you know confessing sin. And, you know, it continues into talking about acknowledging that we have an advocate. But I do think that that you may not sin is an important statement here, one we can't just explain away as if we were saying something like, I don't know, that you may not sin in some kind of very vague, undefined way. You know, because I think sometimes that's the way we, we approach that statement, if we think about it at all, that, you know, say that you're not sinning because you're not, I don't know, deliberately doing it or something like that. You know what I mean? I can see that, yeah. I mean, how how do we how do we approach this this point then of not sinning? You know, what is John talking about? Well, I think that we have to approach it as as simple as it sounds, as a uh, pattern of life, right? And we're going to talk. We're going to get into this more with the sin that leads to death later. But right. it's not an expectation that this life will be sinlessly perfect. I mean, one eight to ten makes that very clear. But it is an exhortation to live in godliness and walk in light as the text also says. He is clearly concerned about this. And this comes up in Second and Third John too. And I wish it was like First Corinthians, where you get this detailed list of what exactly is going on. Right. This ain't Paul. Right. But we don't. So I do think that it's an it's 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 as simple as an exhortation to grow in godliness and to walk in the light. And this is where our guys get nervous, right? Oh, are you saying to check fruit? 
Like, well, no, not necessarily, but, but, <laughs> but I do think, you know, like, it's like using a confession mirror, right? It's, it's meant to, it's meant to show us our sin here. So if we look at ourselves in accordance with the law, okay, what, what sins am I struggling with? And should I try to overcome them? Would God want me to overcome them? Should I overcome the world? That's what the text says, right? Right, right. <laughs> the one who loves God overcomes the world. Of course, through Christ. Of course, through the Spirit working through us. Nobody is is saying that. But as we've talked about before, and as I've talked about elsewhere, there is kind of this defeatist idea that sin has mastery over me. But I don't think that that's how the new man is presented in the Bible. Right. No, I don't think so at all. In fact, I, I was going to ask the question, maybe I'll just kind of go go with it here. You know, should we take John seriously when he says that you may not sin, as if an implication that there is a sense in which we don't sin? You know, because I think very often we present sin, as you say, as this kind of strong man, which still has dominion over us, yes. even even as the regenerate. And we're always meant to say, well, there's no pure good works because it's always tainted with sin. Okay. Now we but, get we get hints of this in the confessions, but we also in the confessions get what that these are truly good works. <laughs> okay, and if you want to say that Christ is working through you to do them, that's fine too. Then you can't say they're sin tainted. If you want to say it's Christ working in you, they're not because it's Christ. <laughs> no, we don't really like that's more of a it's it's something that's said to keep us humble. It's not necessarily untrue, but at the same time, we are talking about Christians here, regenerate people. Right. Can a Christian do a good work? I think that the Bible makes it clear that they can and that we have put a layer of sophistry over top of it to try to say we can't in order to avoid a kind of works righteousness or a self-righteousness. It's a noble aim, but it's it's kind of like putting Vaseline over a camera lens uh, to try to make things look a little bit better or look distorted, right? Right. So to get you that soap opera lighting. So a Christian can do a good work. I would, I'm just going to come down and say it. Now, does that mean that you should, at the end of the day, tally your good work? No, John MacArthur, I don't think so. And that's a straw man. I don't think John MacArthur ever actually said that. But, <laughs> but, some of, but there is an emphasis in certain reform circles to evaluate yourself based upon the fruit that you're bearing. That, to me, okay, I see where they're coming from, but it seems a little bit dangerous. I think it would be better to evaluate yourself according to the law of God and see where you're falling short more than where you're exceeding. I think that's more healthy. But let me put it this way. If someone is struggling with the sin of gluttony and they learn to master the appetite and eat less, if somebody's struggling with drunkenness and they can put the bottle down where once they couldn't, is that not growing in grace? Absolutely it is. Yeah. And we don't want to we don't want to belittle that either. Right. If someone truly repents and turns from a sin, if someone commits adultery, repents of it and doesn't commit adultery again, Hey, guess what? That's that's fruitful <laughs> repentance. And we shouldn't be afraid of this. What we are afraid of are the excesses or the potential excesses that come from this. We're always afraid of kind of a creeping legalism. And I understand that is that is a danger, but we can kind of come into a danger of our own. We have we have we have kind of a, its own legalism. A legalism that says the the only law is to embrace antinomianism. Right? <laughs> Which we will talk about. I, I do think that antinomianism is at the heart of this epistle, by the way. No, I, I think that's certainly a part of it, too. But basically, somebody's going to come at you and say, well, does that mean you're advocating for something like entire sanctification then? 
Absolutely you know. not. I, my record <laughs> on John Wesley is very clear. And and again, as I said a few minutes ago, you can't read this without reading the the first chapter. If we say right. we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. You have to take it all together. That it's a continual life of repentance from first to last. That is the entire life of the Christian. We have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when we do that, God is faithful to forgive us. And yet we have the pattern laid down clearly by Christ. You know, imitate me. And clearly by, uh, you know, uh, elsewhere in the scripture that we are to, to walk in a certain way. Because we are children of God, we walk in light and not in darkness. And as we're going to see from the epistle, walking in light means two things. It means confessing right doctrine, because I do think the doctrine is is at the heart of this epistle as well, and living according to it. Right. Because doctrine is not merely a list of rules, of course, but doctrine does inform our life. If doctrine is not informing our life and how we live and how we believe, then we need to toss it out, right? Well, I mean, I, I think I think the point's been made already, but if if not... That if we have the right doctrine, and yet we are not living in accordance with the implications of that doctrine, then it's obvious that we don't actually believe it in the first place. Right. Well, like, let me, um, like, like, okay. So, for example, um, let's let's do one that's not that doesn't sound so moral. Let's say that we believe in a real presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Okay. And we do. We do. Yes. That it's truly <laughs> Christ's body and blood presented there. Now, what happens if we take that irreverently? What if we take that not thinking about what we do? Now, I'm not talking about the consequences just yet. Not not the consequences just yet. But, okay, you're not really discerning what you're doing when you take it. You show up to church not really thinking about it, and you go through the motions and just take it. And then you take the host, you decide not to eat it, you're just going to stick it in your pocket. You're going to chuck it out the window. Would that be <coughs> Would that be a moral problem? Extremely. Of course. Yeah. Why? Because you're violating the body of Christ you're denying the body of Christ well and, well and even even let's just set aside the, the you know the actual body for a second just think about what that says about your beliefs about what you're doing exactly exactly so that there is a moral component to believing wrongly right right um and it's just the same as because what you've done there is okay you say that I you you know okay so you're you're probably uh, confirmed or something if you're admitted to the altar in this in this scenario we're well, actually denying your confession by what you're doing right you're denying the doctrine that you claim to to believe in right. so that doctrine practice morality all wrapped up together and we've not and, and that's without even getting to the second table <laughs> so i don't know i don't want to really go off on this tangent but there's something to be said about the moral impropriety of certain kinds of worship in this way or certain practices concerning what you do uh, in the Lord's Supper and things like that. But it, all this to say that you can't disconnect morality from doctrinal confession because the two are so intertwined. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and the fact that you are showing the reality of what you believe by your actions, I mean, just goes back to what Jesus says, you know, you shall know them by their fruits. Yeah. And, well, this is like going back to worldly reputation and things like that. I I understand when people are trying to be, quote-unquote, all things to all people. But the modern version of that is just cozying up to people who are hostile to the gospel. And, and and it's always said, well, it's so that I can reach them. No, but is it? Because you're never preaching it to them. Right. You're, all you're ever doing is saying, no, I'm cool, I'm just like you. And that's a, that's a, that's a worrisome thing for me. Maybe I'm just antisocial, I don't know. Well, um, 
we knew this already, though. Right. <laughs> I just it's it's just an amazing contrast between rebuking, you know, or these big public sermons that often rebuked the elites to to embracing whatever agendas the elites tell you to now. <laughs> but Which that's a whole us, different episode. <laughs> right. Sort of. We're getting to the Antichrist, though. Um, do you have anything else you want to say on that before we move on? No, I, I think we've made the point clear in that, uh, you know, that not sinning in this sense is not an entire sanctification sort of thing, but right. it is no, a no, recognition. The, the, the Wesleyan and holiness folks are in error here, right. um, based just upon the first chapter of this epistle. And honestly, I think most Wesleyan holiness will probably, that you meet will probably say, oh, I've not reached entire sanctification. Well, even Wesley said that. So, right. <laughs> And at the very least, I'll give them this. They believe that it's a second work of grace, that if you're going to achieve that, God's going to give it to you. It's, it's not going to be something that you're going to be able to do on your own. Right. It's, I mean, it's. I think it's wrong, but at least that's a better way of looking at it than simply saying, well, I've avoided beer, television, and uh, blue suits my entire life, so I'm probably going... You know, because that's what you get when you try to really, I mean, live in a truly legalistic way. You end up with just kind of kind of bonkers interpretations like one of the early uh church of god preachers and i think this is church of god anderson don't don't come at us church of god anderson if i'm wrong with this but he he rejected two things ice cubes because he called them worldly luxury don't get any ideas Ellen. and neckties <laughs> he thought that neckties were worldly so it was more christian to go open collared huh. so yeah, you can get a little out there right i mean well, th- you can go off the rails because I think Lloyd Jones also mentioned one time of a man who, so he so he would not violate what he understood to be the Sabbath, would put his shoes on the night before. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and unfortunately, there that is exactly the kind of mindset that you can unfortunately fall into, out of I mean, out of a good desire, I suppose, you know, because you wanted to follow after God, but you ultimately end up in, as you say, these bonkers interpretations. So right, and so yeah, I don't want anybody to come away from this episode thinking that this is what we're endorsing or anything, you know, like that. Any any uh, anything <laughs> like that. Put your shoes on Saturday night so you don't work too much on the Sabbath. There there is a <laughs> Judaizing tendency among some, right, and and it can and it can really creep in. But I mean, we've got guys who would hit you with a ruler if you cross your thumbs the wrong way, too. I don't know what you're talking about, Willie. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, well let's um, let's dive into the Antichrist here. Um, we are still in, <clears throat> excuse me, chapter two, and he's going to warn us about Antichrist. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that this is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed with the Holy One, excuse me, anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. Okay, so the Antichrist is coming. We know the truth, and because no lie is of the truth, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. And he goes on to say, you know, no one denies the Son. Who denies the Son has the Father. Bad news for other religions, other quote-unquote Abrahamic religions. So right. so much we can talk about here um, in this chapter. But first, I'm just going to ask you, um, is the Antichrist coming? And have many Antichrists come, Zellman? Where do you stand on that? Well, okay, because it the clearly answer should says... Be, your answer should be yes, but go on. Yeah, well, yes. Yes, I mean... 
what I'm trying to say is, is I'm not humming and hawing here, but obviously we have a recognition that Antichrist is coming, but also many Antichrists, plural, yes. have come. So it's... And I, and the only reason, because I know we as Lutherans have historically said, and I think there's, you know, we would agree with this, that, you know, that the Pope, the, the office of the papacy is the Antichrist because he is speaking against the gospel. You know, he anathematizes the gospel. Right. But yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, but no, was, uh, you need to go first because I'm going to, I might go off on popery. Well, we need to is, go off which on is, popery. Which is, which is rare on this podcast, but go on. <laughs> but my emphasis here is that if we... And I think we've talked about this in Revelation, too, that if we emphasize that, like it's already happened, we know that it's happened already, we might not recognize that there is more than one in that sense. There are yeah. Antichrists, plural. Now, right. is, there, is there such a thing as the Antichrist, you know, the, the end times Antichrist, the one to rule them all, as it were? I think that's a fair interpretation, but we can't, we can't deny the fact that that. John uses the plural here. Right, yeah, there are antichrists, and then in light of, well, this too, you know, that antichrist is coming, and many antichrists, and of course with 2 Thessalonians and Revelation 13, okay, you got the big antichrist, and that's kind of a spiritual danger because people go, okay, he's not here yet, but they forget there are many out there. And specifically in this context, it's the one who denies the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Well, what is, so you hear about these so-called Abrahamic religions, there's only one Abrahamic religion, that's Christianity. Amen. That Islam does not properly have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because they deny the Son. Right. And he who denies the Son doesn't have the Father. Judaism does not have the Son. And if you want to know what Talmudic Jews say about Jesus, it's probably worth a Google. If it'll even pop up. It's not good. So... <laughs> So, and I talk about those because we sometimes, in modern times, you're supposed to lump them all together, that they all worship right. the same God. But biblically speaking, that's not true. If you believe that Jesus Christ is God, as the scriptures teach, and as the church universally confesses, then they are not the same God. Right. You know, there are other differences too, I would argue. But just with that one big one, that one big issue, you don't have that. Um, and people get really heated over this. People get really upset over this. Uh, no one who denies the Son has the Father. That's what the Bible says. It's in I, the Bible, it's, man. It's right here. I can't get around that. <laughs> but um, anyway, antichrists. So antichrists are first and foremost, you know, the ones who who deny the Son. And you you can extrapolate from that, of course, the one who denies the Word. Right. Right. And so we would say that the Pope has anathematized the gospel. <clears throat> so that is how we would say the office of the papacy is the antichrist. But it's gone even further than that in modern times. In modern times, how I I don't I, I like to watch trad Catholic channels like on YouTube and read their stuff and just watch them really try to cope through this through modern <laughs> popes because they go, Well, you know, we've been through wicked popes before. Yeah, you had Rodrigo Borgia and others, but the difference was they at least held, at least externally, to the historic confessions of faith. Right. You know, the new guys don't. Okay, you can even start with John Paul II kissing Qurans, kissing other holy books, all the way up to Pope Francis, where they have other religions praying in cathedrals and in Catholic churches. That is the devil. That is evil. That is Antichrist. To have Hindus praying here, to have Pachamamas, pagan idols set up in your at your altars. How am I not supposed to prod out on that? 
<laughs> if I mean, if we if we don't come back for the third segment, it's because the lavender mafia got Willie. So right, but I mean, th- I mean, you, I mean, think about this. You think about what is is allowed to go on, and the trad Catholics are like, well, we'll weather the storm. And you know what? I could admire that position because you believe in the true visible church on earth and, and, and the words of Christ that say the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But then you also have to say you have to be obedient to this pope. See, see. Rome has something that the Eastern Orthodox don't and Protestantism doesn't. We don't have to be obedient to the Pope. Right. And, and the East kind of saw the abuses earlier leading to this, to the great schism. But I mean, it, you can try to put your best construction on kissing holy books of other religions. If you want, that's a really hard one for me to swallow, but all the way up through Francis and others, Pope Francis allowing, allowing other religions to desecrate their altars is, I, I don't understand it. Other yeah. than other than a foul spirit has creeped into Rome, you know the, the old saying, you know when Rome sneezes we catch a cold, right? Well, we're not immune to what Rome does, whether we believe it or not, because some of our churches will kind of follow along with that, right? And I'm not right. just talking about the three year lectionary or, or anything, but people see that and they see that Rome appears to have worldly respect for this, but but they don't. They're scandalizing their people, and this is a detriment to the faith. We had our Yankee Stadium controversy, right? Well, imagine having something worse than, arguably worse than that, occurring uh, on an everyday basis at our altars. That's what happens in Rome often at the highest levels. So that is why when you have uh, guys like Cardinal Supic and, and people like that, uh, Supic who stood by while the mayor of Chicago, who is a Protestant and who is living a lifestyle that is not in accordance with the word of God, was able to receive communion and he didn't do anything. So the humblest Lutheran pastor uh, practicing close communion in his parish that you've never heard of and never will hear of is doing a much greater work than Cardinal Supic is doing. Cardinal Supic and guys like him are putting themselves in very dangerous spiritual positions. And we too could find ourselves that way when we begin to compromise. If we begin to deviate from what John is saying in his first epistle, we can find ourselves there too. Because I don't want to throw stones in glass houses here. As I mentioned at the very beginning, we could do a better job of reproving and rebuking in the Lutheran church too. And just like that word fitly became a discernment ministry. That's right. It's, it's the mid two thousands again. <laughs> Don't come at me, Chris Rosebro. That's your turf, buddy. It's all you. And with that, we're on our second break. We'll be right back with more word fitly spoken right after this. Listening to a word fitly spoken, I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi, talking about First John. Well, Zelwyn, I kind of uh, came out hard swinging um, at the Cardinals and stuff, like it was the 1500s 
at the end of the segment. Uh, you had some things you wanted to say about the Antichrist, so <laughs> proceed, sir. Well, no, it, it, it's all good because you know we need we need those bursts of of uh, Reformation rage. It feels pretty good. So I, I just wanted because you mentioned in passing, you know, that we also have passages like uh, Thessalonians as well as Revelation talking about the Antichrist, uh, the man of lawlessness, as well as. Well, the, which beast would you say represents the Antichrist, Willie, in Revelation? Which beast? Yeah, which beast? Well, you're going to have to tune into the Revelation 13 episode to find that out. Because <laughs> you, right. you have... You have a, beasts, right. You have multiple ahead. beasts, yeah. Yeah, there's yeah, two of them. There's two beasts. <laughs> well, and even, even the first beast, which is said to come up out of the, the sea is something which is described in fairly composite kind of terms, you know, to having lots of different animals kind of put together sort of a thing. So it has m- multiple heads and stuff like that. Of course, drawing on the, the language out of uh, Daniel to, to make that image. But the, in Daniel, it was described as being nations that were those. So, I mean, even, even when we have the images we traditionally associate with the Antichrist, there is a sense in which it's not just a singular individual right sure yeah and so should we always then be on the lookout now here's the thing this is where somebody's gonna throw up the meme where they're like the bible i saw this the other day and it it made the rounds the bible doesn't say that we should live in fear of antichrist but in uh hope of the christ that is coming now now that is true but at the same time John literally writes, it is at this is the last hour, and you know that Antichrist is coming, and you know it, and here is how you know him, and here is what you should do. Right. Right. <laughs> so beware meme theology is what I'm saying. And I'm not saying you should <laughs> fear the Antichrist. You should be on guard for the sake of, the, of, of your soul and the souls that are entrusted to your care. Well, especially because John's point here is that the, the reason why we should be on guard against the Antichrist is because he is a deceiver. Because, right. I mean, that's the whole point of, you know, he's he is the one who's denying that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one who's denying the Father and the Son. He's going to come at you the way, I mean, that the devil does, who is his father, that he is going to deny the truth of what it is that we are confessing. Right. And he is going to appeal to you with those sins listed um, in verse 16, the desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. That right. is how you're going to be tempted. It, go along with what the Antichrist says, or you will be cut off from these things. Right. You will be marginalized. You won't be able to live a normal life. Doesn't sound like anything I've heard before. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, even even with let okay, let's say let's let's go with the, the traditional Lutheran interpretation of the Pope. Even when we're recognizing it in in the papacy, you still have that same sort of mentality, right? If you don't submit yourself to the Pope, the argument goes, then you're cutting yourself off from the church. You're cutting yourself off from Christ. You know, it is this marginalization sure. of Protestants that we right. see going on, you know, from the official official level. So, yeah, it is the spirit of Antichrist. But again, I think we'd emphasize that it's not the only spirit at work. Sure. So kind of moving on from that, then I write these things. Why? <laughs> uh, to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. Now, don't read this wrongly. He's not saying that you don't need to be taught. Okay, You have no need that anyone should teach you. Well, he's speaking of the false teachers. Obviously, you need someone to teach you. He's written you this letter. 
Right. So <laughs> it's basically you don't need a new guru. You don't need new doctrine. Right. Is what's happening here. Just to be careful. Because people will read this and go, oh, okay, so I don't need any teachers. I don't need anything. I'm just going to open it up and and the truth is going to come to me. And that's really not um, always how the Bible works. It's meant to be taught and learned. And it's and it's a lifelong thing learning the scriptures here. Um, but learning the, learning them faithfully. As as you say though, the implication here is, is that the the false teachers were implying that they were lacking. That they were you know, lacking. That they and that's were what and that's what false teachers always do. I have the fullness here. I have more here. I have something novel here. And I would argue that what's going on here has probably just gotten worse as time's gone on. Because we have people now who are discovering things in the Bible that nobody saw for two thousand years. Right. And you know what that means. <laughs> that it must be right. Is that what it means, right. really? <laughs> right. So abide in Christ so that when he appears, we, or abide in him, uh, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It's going to go on to chapter 3. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices, here's a word, Zelwyn, lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So what do we what do we make of that? Well, I mean, to endure in sin, to make a practice of sinning, is to go against the law. I mean, that sounds like kind of a Sunday school statement, I suppose, but it's something we really should pay attention to, especially because we have such uh, an aversion in some circles against all talk of God's law, right? right? You know, this this idea that God has given us the law as something we should delight in, in that sense, to use the language of the Psalms, uh, right. is is anathema to some people. Right. And, you know, here we get into what we were saying earlier. It's about a habit of life. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil, based. Based. <laughs> so no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. So this is not your habitual pattern of life. You're not willfully giving into this. I feel like we could go back to Walther if people really needed some reassurance here, because he actually <laughs> talks about this. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning, because, why? Because he has been born of God. Right. Okay, so everything we're saying, we're not making it up, all right here. Then he's going to go, okay, so what does this look like then? Back to loving one another. This is what you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Okay, we're in 3.11, and now 3.12. He's going to give a specific example. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. So here's what it looks like. Don't murder each other. Don't kill each other. Don't harm each other. Fulfill the commandment. How do we fulfill that second table, right? We don't steal from our neighbor, but what do we do? We support him in every bodily need. For example, we don't kill. We support life, right? Right. Things like that. Well, before you before you get too far along here, because yeah. I, I know I know you're clipping along pretty quickly, which is fine. I mean, it's right. a great book. We could just read it verbatim, and, and you'd still get a lot out of it. Because one thing I really wanted to point out here was up in the previous a little earlier in the, in the chapter here is talking about being born of God. In other words, uh, the necessity of being regenerated, of being born again. And I think that's something that we can't overlook because I know you said earlier we talked about, you know, the, the tendency that we sometimes have in Lutheran circles to overlook the new man. 
the fact that we are in fact new, that we are living in Christ. And I think the fact that we are not making a practice of sinning is a result of that regeneration. So we don't want to overlook the fact that God has created something new in us, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that it is God's work, that it is God doing it, and it, mm-hmm. it is powerful. So where God works, uh, God wins, God succeeds. And the <laughs> fact that we are regenerated then naturally plays into what you were talking about, that we actually love one another. Because right. if we are regenerate, if we are born again, if we are living in God, then that is going to show itself in the fact that we love the brothers. Right. And reading things like love and hate in our modern context really confuses a lot of things. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And yet the Bible does call us to hate certain things. (laughs) It says that God hates certain things. So this is not simply a toleration of anything and everything. Right. right, but it is it is loving your neighbor as you can in accordance with the word of God. It's not embracing well, sin. Well, and the the hate that you were talking about, like God hating sin, is a recognition that it is evil, that it is something that is not of God, it is something that we don't want to tolerate. But the hate that uh, John is talking about here would be the kind of hate that would, uh, for example, deny your brother the things that he needs. Right. That kind of hard hearted selfishness. You know, that kind of hatred is what we're, is right. what John is talking about. And then, so there's all this language about following after Christ, be righteous as he is righteous. And then you have this ultimate example of love. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Now, people go, okay, well, fine. If I'm in, if I'm in the position to die for someone, I can. But John's not letting you off the hook that easy. Because this is how he defines it. This is how he defines laying down your life for your brother. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That laying down your life is not merely literally laying down your life as in going to the cross. Not only that, I'm sorry, I don't mean to say merely when referring to the cross, forgive me. But um, it's not only a physical dying, but it is setting aside your own livelihood for the sake of your brother. Little children, let us not love in word or talk but in deed and truth. <laughs> it's one thing to take a bullet for somebody else, which I think is what everybody wants to do. Cause you know, that's right. in a sense, that is a, I don't want to say it's an easy thing, but it's, it's certainly a very, you know what I'm trying to say? It's a more what, glorious thing. It's a more glorious thing, but the fact that we might have to give up, you know, $200 for our brother or something like that so that he can have the things that he needs. That's a lot harder to do for most people. Yeah. And and for for many reasons, you know, one it's just wanting to hold on to what's ours for a sake of security, and also just the awkwardness of it sometimes, not right. wanting to hurt and, and not wanting to hurt someone's pride. But now, but by now, though, when people might be getting worried, and then we have these beautiful words here: "By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him." For whenever our heart condemns us, and we talk about this a lot in the podcast, that you will feel contrition, your heart will condemn you. God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything, beloved. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whenever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. But remember, you're reading this with the introduction in mind. Okay. That if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, but God is faithful to forgive us. So when our heart does condemn us, we can go back to our advocate, Jesus Christ, and receive through the means that God has established 
the forgiveness of sins. And I, I do want to be very, very clear with that, that we don't want to get too far away in this discussion when talking about reassuring a condemned heart, that we need to go to the means that God has instituted to receive that balm, as it were. Right. Well, now, hold on a second, Willie. John yes. just said, we yes. have confidence before God because we keep his commandments. Correct. What do, what do you do with that? <laughs> yes. Uh, one, uh, become very uncomfortable. <laughs> but two, this is just what it's coming back, that, that the one who does well, okay, this is kind of like out of Proverbs, right? You sleep better when you're living right. Right. So your conscience actually isn't as afflicted. Now, there's some truth to this, to this axiom, right? That the more mature you get in the faith, okay, you sin less, but you feel it more. So it's kind of a wash from when you were a young Christian and sinning all the time and not right. feeling it. Right. I think there's some truth to that. But there is this general truth. It's um, it's it's St. Aaron Tippin said, uh, <laughs> whatever you do today, you have to sleep with tonight. You've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything. And I think that there is some truth to this here, that there is... Um, there is something beneficial about living according to the will of God. And only when you're doing that can you have confidence to speak of the things of God. And I think a lot of our guys don't really realize that. I think that they live it. I think that our guys who are speaking very loudly often are living godly lives, but they don't think of it that way. That if they were true hypocrites, they couldn't get up and loudly crow about doctrinal things. Right. Although we do have hypocrites, don't get me wrong. Right. But a lot of our guys, I think, know this implicitly, if not explicitly. Well, and I think because the thing that we have to emphasize here is that, you know, the keeping of the commandments, again, this isn't a legalistic kind of thing, but a no. recognition that, as you say, we are doing what is pleasing in God's sight yeah. only because of what Christ has done, of course. Yeah, and I think here, too, you have to, um, you also have to take it in the context of what John is saying, that it actually does flow first from a doctrinal understanding of Jesus Christ as God of embracing the Son. Right. Okay, because that's what he goes from. He goes from acknowledging Jesus Christ for who he is and what he did, believing in that gospel, and from there we go into the loving the neighbor part. So everything is flowing from the person and work of Christ. Right. So it is a life of faith that is born out in love of neighbor. And that's how you live and walk. And if we don't have that love of neighbor, then it's evidence that we don't have Christ. Right. And what do you do if you find yourself without that love? Okay, if you find yourself without that love and of neighbor and you're not convicted, you need a preacher. But if you find yourself without that love and you and you are convicted and your heart is condemning you, you're in a good spot because now we can work with that. That means God is working within you. That means the Holy Spirit is dwelling. And so you go and you receive absolution. You receive that forgiveness of sin. And and God picks you up and he dusts you off and he and he and he bids you come follow me. God is okay. not casting you out when you sin. God is ever calling us to repent and to believe in him and to follow him. Well, and and with that repentance too, that repentance is not just a okay, let's see what happens this time kind of a thing, you know, as if he's setting us up to fail again. Right. You know, it is it is a renewal. It is a regeneration. It is setting us in the right way so that we can resist the temptation to sin. Now, are we going to fall into it again? It's it's quite likely because we are still, you know, sure. sin still clings so closely to us. But it's not a fatalistic kind of a thing. Like, you know, it's inevitable that we're going to do that sin again. 
It doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it is that way, but it doesn't have to be. And this is so important to John. You can see this in this epistle because it's five chapters, but really only like three subjects. Right. You know, (laughs) believe in Christ, walk in Christ, and don't believe wrong things because it's going to turn everything around. You know, we're coming up near the end of the episode. We haven't even gotten into testing the spirits, but we could also probably do an entire episode just on testing spirits. Well, we are a discernment ministry now. so That's right. That's right. But I, I do want to touch on this in the last couple of minutes then. Do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Many false prophets, I don't know if you know this, Dylan, have gone out into the world. By this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus has come in the flesh, in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So they are from the world, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them, but we are from God. Whoever loves God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So, what does this mean for us? That we shouldn't despair when the world attacks us for what we believe. We shouldn't despair when we're trying to live according to the law of God. Because he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Well, and it's also comforting because when we recognize that there is a spirit of error, the spirit of Antichrist, you know, these uh, demonic forces which are distorting the gospel and stuff like that, we don't have to despair because thinking, oh, well, is this just a matter of, you know, our interpretation? You know, this is just the way that we look at the Bible so that we become kind of indifferent towards these differences among us. No, there is a spirit of error which exists, and it's a spirit which can be recognized. And for that reason, we don't have to despair because, as you say, God is greater than the world. So we should just speak the truth, speak what is actually of God, and the spirit of error will show itself for what it is. Yeah, absolutely. And and to not shrink from that, uh, to not shrink from proclaiming the unadulterated, full-bore word of God. Uh, and, and to keep um, expounding that word, preaching that word, but most importantly for our sake, to keep drinking from that well, that well that cannot be exhausted. And to stop, for all thing, for the love of all things good and holy, seeking favor with the world. If recent events and the state of the world have not taught you this, there is nothing to be gained from allying with the world. At all. Um, you know, uh, when the apostle is brought forth uh, before the emperor, why is he brought? Why does he seek an audience with the emperor uh, to become friends with him and say, "Hey, you know, Sol Invictus, bro"? No, he's <laughs> a little later, I know, but he's uh, he does it for what reason? So that he might preach the gospel to him. Right. So that he might win him to Christ. And so, well, that's most of First John. We didn't get into the Yohannan comma or any of the fun stuff we all know you were you were uh, looking forward to. Um, but that is the gist of the book. Zellin, any final words before we call it a day? I think we'll probably pick up those other topics at another point just to so we can really talk about Chapter 4 some more as well as talk about Chapter 5 and all of the things that come with that. But I think the thing to emphasize is just what John has been emphasizing again and again and again. You know, that when we confess that we are in need of God's grace and when we recognize Jesus for who he is, that will lead us into the way that God would have us live. 
And when we live in that way and walk according to that light, we will have the reassurance that comes from Christ alone. Very good. Well, this has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. God love you and God bless. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree.